This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Live from the Fireside app, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and what's the future look like for banking and investing? We'll dive in today and, oh wow, it looks like we have a relative of John Landis with us. You know, John Landis, right? I'm a director of Trading Places and the Three Amigos and that classic Coming to America. Even though they spell their names differently, Jesus, just so cool he's here. Let's welcome the director of the Plutus Foundation, the team responsible for the Plutus Awards, Harlan Landis. By the way, there's there's like zero chance Harlan's appearance here has anything to do with the Iberico ham spread and caviar we sent him, you know, or that... This new book that we got out, which, huh, appears to be Plutus eligible. What do you know? Well, anyway, quickly changing topics. Let's welcome at the roundtable from LenPenzo.com. It's Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Just kidding. It's Eddie's twin, Len Penzo. With us as well, trying to score Plutus points for the Afford Anything podcast, because I think she's only won like seven so far. It's Paula Pants. And now... A guy who's going to round out the three amigos in the basement here, Joe Saul Sihai. Welcome to Podcasting for the Math Challenged, everybody. Doug, isn't it five amigos? I think it's five. I don't know if we're all friends. I have no idea what your relationship is Four amigos and a senorita? I don't know. (laughs) Everybody... (laughs) Welcome to Not Sure of the Terminology Podcast. Did you just gender her? I I don't know. In another language? I have have no idea what I did. It's just another episode. (laughs) It's another Friday on the Stacky Benjamin Show. We got a great show today because we're going to be talking about some statistics coming out about 2021 when it comes to baking and investing. And we're going to dive into those and kind of look into our own crystal balls. Of course, we looked into our uh, Magic 8-Ball early this year. But now we're going to see, are these trends, is this going to continue or what is the future of investing and baking? We'll ask our crack team here, but let's introduce you to them. We'll start off with the woman who who is on this podcast. Paula Pant is here. 
I certainly am. Wondering why I am, but hey, here, here I am. Well, well, what, way, what is going wait, on, Paula? Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, wondering why I'm here as usual. But you know what? There are two things that I'll say. Number one, I never got uh, Iberico ham or caviar. Apparently Harlan has. Well, so you don't run I'm- a Plutus Awards. Oh, well, that has nothing to do with it. Never mind. <laughs> right, right. Because you're quote unquote, not bribing. <laughs> right. And, and, and Paula, by the way, how old were you when you won the Lifetime Achievement Award? I was 33. I was yes. 33 years old when I won Lifetime Achievement. We have so, to have a discussion, Paula. God. This is this has got to be your last episode. You're getting yeah, up you're there. You're done, Paula. What are you doing here? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> And the guy deep under Los Angeles, who also, first time I went to uh, FinCon, because the Plutus Awards often appear at the same time as FinCon, I watched this guy win Best Blog. Mr. Len Penso is here. How are you, my friend? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm working on my own lifetime achievement right now. I'm taking a bunch of pictures in my closet and my underwear drawer. I'm gonna. I'm going to release some NFTs. Wow! Uh, I thought you were. I thought you were saying taking pictures in your closet <laughs> yeah. in your underwear. It's like holy yeah. no. You know what? That's no. a great idea. No. There's another NFT. There's another <laughs> NFT right there. That one will probably be worth the most. He's got a corner on the NFT market. You're going to be a billionaire, <laughs> Mr. Penzo. Yeah. You know what I'm just saying cuz I'm I'm on a CNBC right now and what's trending it says this couple made nearly 120,000 in under 6 hours selling NFTs to save their home from foreclosure. So, hey, if they can do it, I can do it. How about that? Isn't that is is that a success story or is that sad? Is it I mean it's great on one end for them, but on the other hand, it's like we thought beanie babies were maybe a bridge too far. Uh, maybe, but, uh, you know what? It's worth a shot. Don't you think? Absolutely. Go for it, man. No. I'm going for it. Remember your friends, Len, and I'd stay away from the pictures of you in <laughs> yeah. your underwear. In your and you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll give abuse. Harlan a couple freebies, you know, Whoa. just, just because. Well, let's meet the man right now. He is, uh, maybe or maybe not, uh, related to John Landis. Harlan Landis is here. How are you, dude? I'm fantastic, and I can't wait to uh, see what Len has to offer in some of those photographic delights. <laughs> yeah, that is. Hey, uh, you have a new season of the Plutus podcast coming out, right? That's right, Joe. I'm so excited, actually. it's Michelle Jackson is coming in to host this season, and she's got some amazing plans this time around. Um, we're really going to talk about the, the way to balance making an impact with your audience versus actually making some money when you're doing what you're doing with your financial blogging, podcasting, creating videos, everything that this community that we serve at the Plutus Foundation does. So we're really excited about this. It's going to be fantastic. We should talk about that for a second, because for people that don't know the Plutus Foundation, you work with creators to help get the word out to uh, many different underserved communities. Yeah, that's right. And the bottom line is we want All of the uh, financial content creators out there, people who speak about money, who write about money, who do podcasts like yourself, um, we want them to have an incredible impact and change the world, um, especially when it comes to underserved communities. So we just do whatever we can as a foundation to support them. Uh, in all of those efforts. And the podcast that we put together is one of those great ways. It's a simple way people can subscribe to that and get just amazing ideas on how they can do a better job with with their blogs and podcasts. Well, what's really cool for, for me as a creator is that you've had three different, this will be your 
your third host of the show. And I like the fact that each host brings a little bit something different. Chris Browning has that fantastic voice and asks questions a certain way. Sarah Lee Kane likes to dig really deep. And Michelle Jackson, I can't wait to hear what she brings to the table. It's gonna be it's gonna be a great time. So we'll have more about that later in the show. We've got Harlan here, we got Len here, we got Paula. Time to get this party started. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required, terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. All right, and now... Let's talk about the future of a banking and investing, shall we? Joe, Joe, what is that music? What do you mean, what is that music? What, I mean, I've never heard that music before. <laughs> what? I, 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 I got one week off so that I can go across the state to a, a Walmart and... That's what we, I get. Well, it oh, is, hold on. I, you know what? I think I have heard that before. Did you? Did you write the Wait, song? <laughs> you went across the state to go to a Walmart. Yeah, the Walmart in Texarkana sucks. I mean, let's don't even. Well, get wait me a there. minute. He's talking about the Walmart in Texarkana, Texas. He went to the one in Wall in Texarkana, Arkansas. Paula. Yeah. Well, yes. Why didn't you it just go a journey. all the way to Bentonville at that point? <laughs> right, right. Right. Two miles but, versus. But let's not get distracted. I like my things the way they were, and you've changed things. Yes. Well, for those of you that weren't here last week, like Doug, we uh, kept getting copyright violations, even though we legally own the music about uh, the old song. So this is the new song, Doug. This is the new. This is the new, this... new. Welcome to the new, new. And we're, thank you. We're going to talk about new banking and investing today. Our first piece comes to us from CNBC. Let's start off with banking. U.S. banks closed record number of retail branches in 2021. I'll let you guess. 
who shuddered the most? Okay, you already know it was Wells Fargo, of course. Shuddered the most branches. U.S. banks closed a record number of retail branches in 2021 on net. U.S. banks shuttered 2,927 branches, according to S&P Global Market Intelligence data. Wells Fargo closed 267. Let's dive into this topic. Paula, how about this? Does this surprise you? A lot of banks, a lot of brick and mortar going bye-bye in the banking industry? Nope. Frankly, if there's anything that surprises me, it's that it took this long for it to happen. Online banking, mobile banking has been huge for a long time. And the fact that we had as much brick and mortar as we did, you know, it's a legacy that was on its way out and the pandemic only accelerated that trend. All right. Let's see if our other uh, panelists agree with you. Mr. Penzo, surprised? I'm not surprised, but gosh, it's a it's a trend that I'm a little concerned about just because, uh, you know, Sometimes it's nice to actually go into a bank if you need to uh, talk to somebody in person. It just it, you get that personal touch. Is that seriously. just an old guy thing? I mean, is that just a, I, I got to take my pennies from the piggy bank and go in to visit the teller. I don't know. It's just it's just nice to have a you know a, somebody you can actually in person talk to. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, online is great, and it makes sense that they're they're downsizing. But boy, oh boy, it you know. Can we have a little personal touch still going? Harlan, how about you? Surprised by this? Yeah, not surprised. And not surprised that Wells Fargo is leading this either. Because I know that when I walk around my city, I see uh, there's just too many Wells Fargo branches as it is. I mean, you walk down a, a city block and you see one on every corner almost. It's almost like Starbucks. So there's no surprise to me that Wells Fargo is leading this in terms of number of branches closed. But it is time. It took me a while to get into the habit of just not going to a branch. I love technology. I've been using ATM since forever, of course. And, you know, deposits, everything's mobile now and it's fantastic and I love it. And I think that is the way that things go. When I when I realized that I had to actually walk into a branch to open a new account somewhere rather than just take care of the entire process online, I was I was stunned because this is this is supposed to be, you know, the 21st century. I, I was surprised that they made me do this. And, you know, you didn't want to go into the branch. You're the opposite of Len. No, I, it, it's time for the branches to just, you know, d- disappear. Like uh, th- there's a couple of things that I still will need to do in a branch. And I guess it's like a cashier's check and things like that. But maybe there's another way to set this up. Maybe we don't need bank branches at all. What is your, what is a customer service? Len was talking about customer service. What does customer service mean to you when it comes to the bank then? I, I, you know, for me, I just, I have no attachment to that. And, you know, I'm Gen X too. So it's not like I grew up with online banking, right? But when it comes to these these services, I, I mean, it's just make sure I have the money that I need when I need it and uh, take care of the transfers that I'm trying to do. And none of that re- really requires going into a bank. Paula, when it comes to the customer service touch from a bank, what do you look for? I think being able to talk to an actual human if you place a phone call. So in the event that you do need to have a one-on-one conversation with another person, you can make a call and you can talk to somebody who is empowered to be able to help you. I think that's a personal touch that does not require a brick and mortar establishment that can still allow banks to have a really good uh, relationship with their customers. 
I would think keeping the app clean then, like if you and Harlan are right, then then just make sure the app doesn't mess up during the transaction. I was trying to buy some plane tickets the other day on, on Delta Airlines, and I was having a heck of a time with errors that the actual app was making, but, but it just seemed very cumbersome. It seems like if you're going to go online, you better make it sleek. Right, exactly. And and Joe, you're talking about errors, but then there's also just crappy design, right? There's bad user interface, bad user experience, you know, fix that and that's going to improve 90% of the customer experience. That's funny. When I was filling in the credit fields, Cheryl and I were doing this together. The first thing it asked for was my credit card number. Second thing it asked for the expiration date. Then when it went to the three digit code, if you hit the tab and it's supposed to just go to the next field, it, it defaulted to the little I that you click for information if you're not sure where to find the, the CVV number instead of the field. And I thought, this is Delta Airlines we're talking about. How do you mess up having the tab go to the field? Yeah, it's just lack of people who are using it uh, and providing feedback. But if you and Harlan are right, that's going to be the difference between keeping customers and not keeping customers in the future. Because to Len's point, there's no human touch anymore. Absolutely. And I think that if you look at other industries, look at Airbnb versus VRBO, right? Which now likes to call itself Verbo. The idea of renting out your home to people who are vacationing, that idea is not new. It's been around forever. But Airbnb gave it a slick user interface. They gave it an intuitive, easy to use app. And so all of a sudden, it dominated that field, a field that had existed for decades prior. it became the dominant force to such an extent that its brand name became synonymous with the act itself. And so that's one example of how across many different industries, we see that the company that can create the slick, intuitive, user-friendly app becomes the company that dominates. And banking, I think, is no different. You're saying, Paula, we don't need the human touch. We just need a really good interface. Exactly. Yeah. I know a kid who had, he was getting ready to go off on his own, you know, graduated college, time to start his new life, set up his own bank account. And he was forced to go into a branch to do that. And it was the last thing he wanted to do. It just seemed like he went back, you know, 20 years. And I think there's a, an active movement towards avoiding that human touch. Paula jokes all the time with me. She's She's like, I don't use my phone to talk to anybody. Right. It's true. It's true. Like, you know, this, it's not so much a phone as it is a mobile computer that happens to have a telephone mechanism. (laughs) A voice system, which gets cobwebs. If you told somebody like 30 years ago that the thing least used on your phone would be the phone, that's a whole different world. Harlan, I want to come back to you because what's interesting when we talk about inclusion, especially through the eyes of the Plutus Foundation, there was a study that Capital One did recently. Of course, Capital One, big time online banking. They've actually opened up just a few centers where people can walk in in some major cities across America. They did a study recently that showed that if you're somebody that has bad credit or a small bank account, you prefer to not talk to any humans. But if you're somebody that that has lots of money and you're worried about wealth management, you never want to talk to a computer. You only want to talk to a human. But number one, does that resonate with you? And number two, is that kind of the parsing we're going to have to do? Know your customer a little better? 
It does to an extent. I think uh, I think wealth management and basic retail banking have different clientele, and those clients have different needs. I know that I, I do have a private banker as well, and most of the time I'll reach out to him. I'll just shoot him an email and say, "Hey, I'm looking to do this, this, or this," and he'll say, um, "You know, either all right, I'll set that up for you, or just go to go to the app and take care of it." So you know, there's a balance there, right? And I think when it comes to the inclusion side of things, I totally understand where that Capital One report is coming from. I think it's spot on. Uh, from what I see, people with limited access definitely prefer the app experience, something they're, they're familiar with. And not only are bank branches not uh, very accessible in certain communities, the people are limited in what their capabilities are in terms of of getting the time that they need to take care of some of these things on person. Well, and, it, I, got, uh, in, and I got the feeling too, Harlan, that people, they're afraid that they're going to be shamed about the fact that they've had some overdrafts or maybe they have a low credit score or depending on what they're talking about, or they have very little money in the bank. They, they feel the sense of shame about it that, you know, we've cultivated this by not talking about money for so long. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there is a lot of shame. There's been shame about money for for just you know such a long time, and that's just a result of generations and generations of people not speaking about it. Uh, and so that has translated into this this feeling that money isn't something that we discuss. And thankfully, over the last twenty years or so, money has been something that people have become uh, more and more comfortable talking about, especially with the online uh, communities, things that afford you some level of anonymity uh, so that you can talk about things freely without feeling that you are being shamed for your financial situation. Yeah, but but I think there might be some training, some human training that also could be done there so, so that we don't feel that way. Well, of course, that's what we're all kind of in the business of doing, aren't we? Len, Len, I want to bring you back into this conversation because you're the guy that brought up at first, hey, uh, I'm missing the human touch. Is there a middle ground? You think Capital One is getting it right right there? I don't mean for this to be a Capital One commercial, but do you think that that's, that's the future of banking? We kind of parse what the customer's looking for and give them human on the app versus computer or what they want? Yeah. You know, I like what Capital One's doing. Again, this is not to be a commercial, but um, actually I've visited some of their modern their latest banking, yeah, uh, those things they have, like where they have they a have. coffee shop. Yeah. Like there's, there was one in um, in Glendale that's really nice. I mean, and I I went in there and it's really cool. You can sit in those places. You can sit there, have a cup of coffee. You, it's really relaxed. There's couches and it's very inviting. There's people there you can talk to. And what's you know one thing about this personal touch that I think is important is especially when you're younger. It's you don't know what you don't know. And it helps when you're talking with maybe a banker. Um, they can actually draw things out of you. They can ask questions from you and they can teach you things just by asking questions and you can learn from them. For example, you know, you're opening up a checking account with them and they can start asking, well, hey, have you considered college savings plans? Have you considered uh, an IRA? Have you considered, you know, getting a personal loan for stuff or lines of credit. I mean, they can draw things out of you. And, you know, if sometimes you don't know what to ask in the first place. So, I mean, and those are kind of great environments, very inviting, very relaxed. And um, it'd be nice if, you know, 
more banks were that way. Well, to close out this half of the conversation, I'm going to stick with you, Len. So when we talk about the future of banking, you know, you were in on the conversation we had about the secret financial lives of Americans. Remember that one about people crying about their money and and all the people reporting that they've eaten out of a dumpster before and and some of those really disturbing numbers. At the end of it, if you remember, Len, they say that banks need to train customers more. Number one, they might be able to charge for it. Number two, they can create some new potential customers that way. So is the education piece of a lot of these apps, is is that where the future needs to go? Yeah, I guess the problem with the app, again, and I'm going to fall back on this, is okay, you've got an app and it's saying, hey, get a safe deposit box or get a certificate of deposit or, or what have you. Some things you don't know about and you really need an interaction with somebody. What, what if the app didn't talk about products? Because frankly, if the app started with a product, I would want to run. What if it started with planning? Like, is this money for your emergency fund? Do you know anything about emergency funds and how to build one? And that gets into a discussion then about the difference between CDs and your checking account and a savings account. Yeah, that's actually, that's a great idea, Joe. I think that's that's really good. Yeah, kind of artificial intelligence almost asking and steering you towards that. Way. Yes. Yeah, and I don't um, know if people would be open to answering all those questions, but to the degree that they are, those can lead them down different different tree paths. I agree with you. Maybe I don't. I, 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 well, thank you. Okay, <laughs> this half the show is over. Let it crease. <laughs> I agree. Who cares what Harlan and Paula think? Paula, what do you think the future looks like? Are we going to have more more bank closings, more brick and mortar going bye-bye and you know the discussion Len and I were just having where's where do you think banks are missing out on not doing enough education yeah I mean I, I think that the trend is going to be for more banks to close unless you know unless there's something innovative that they can do to but yeah I think the, overall the trend line is more brick and mortar is going to close uh, more money will flow into designing beautiful apps and beautiful digital spaces and yeah I just I, I see this as the direction that, uh, that things are going. Uh, Harlan, how about you? Do you like some of the frustration at the foot of banks? Yeah, I, I agree that this is a trend that's going to continue. I think when you're talking about like, do the banks, you know, should they provide more financial education? Is that really the answer? And I, and I kind of think, well, first of all, let's look at personal capital you know, and apps like that, where you can get that financial advice. Oh, and then maybe they offer like a savings account or a debit card or something. Um, and then you have the banks that are, they, I've seen many banks trying to educate their customers, but I, I think we're looking at a company to solve two different problems, right? You can provide a service or you can provide an education. And when you do one well, people tend to not trust that you're doing the other one well. They either think, oh, this corporation is just trying to sell me on something or this education company is offering you know, a, a lackluster product. That's funny you so, say that because when I talk to bankers about this same topic, they always say, that's not what we do, Joe. That's not what we do. And I always come back with, Harlan, I always come back with, but why not? Why wouldn't you create more educated people? Because then in the future, they buy more for you. You're saying that's distrust. Yeah, I, I think there are some things. I think there are definitely reasons why banks haven't been so successful in the education side of things. And I think it comes down to just how people, how these brands are positioned uh, in society. And it's not really set up to do both well. All right. I think that's going to do it for banking. That's our first topic. After the break, we're going to talk investing another trend in 2021 when i tell you you're not going to be shocked by this trend either much like i'm sure you weren't shocked by the last one 
but uh, I think it's probably time for our trivia challenge. For those of you that are new to the show, we have a challenge going on all year long between our three contributors, uh, Mr. Penzo, Paula Pant, and OG, who has a well-deserved day off today. So Harlan, you'll be playing the part of OG today. That gives us some good news and some bad news. Uh, uh, Harlan, you want the good news or the bad news about being OG? Let's start with the bad news. <laughs> well, the bad news is get, that early on here, get this, Len has two, Paula has one, and OG has not won yet. Now, OG was the champion last year and has our beautiful dollar store trophy that's at stake. So th- that's the good news is. Yeah, that he, he's texting pictures of now just to rub our face <laughs> with, in with the candy Come back season, OG. Cut candy canes all around it. It's a hilarious picture. But Harlan, the good news, though, is you get to guess last because of that. So that's the good news. There's no way I'm going to win anyway. Of so. course you will. Not with that spirit. <laughs> Come on. Jeez. I like that spirit. All right. Here we go. Uh, Doug, let's give well, I, Harlan, Len, and Paula our trivia question. You all right? You got Do something? we have the right music for this, or did you change this up on I me, too? I probably changed it. Let's listen. There's stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And all right, fine. It turns out that Harlan Landis is not related to John Landis. Sad times. Uh, John Landis directed one of my favorite movies, Trading Places, where the characters change lives, then try to thwart the bad guy's attempts to corner the frozen, concentrated orange juice market. According to Investopedia, to corner a market means to acquire enough shares of a particular security type to be able to manipulate its price. So a law was passed called the Onion Futures Act, which now bans the trading of futures contracts on onions, as well as an increasingly random list of other things like, weirdly, motion picture box office receipts. So obviously, and you probably saw this come a mile away, my trivia question is, what year was the Onion Futures Act passed? I'll be back with the answer after I put back all these VHS tapes I was going to have Harlan sign. Yeah, it's tough. Harlan, do you sometimes uh, wish you were related to John Landis? He's a legend. And, you know, I, it wouldn't be so bad if we were, but unfortunately, <laughs> you know, I'll you're, just have to. You're a legend in the personal finance space. Come on. Yeah, I, I guess I guess I have that going for me. So maybe maybe he's heard of me, or I don't even know. If he's still- <laughs> well, and I was going to say, Paula, doesn't it make sense that Harlan's playing for OG? Because Harlan really is for people that don't know one of the OGs in this space. Ooh, way to bring that together! Yeah, yes, Harlan uh, pre-exists all of us. Yes. Uh, 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 Harlan, between you, Ramit, and Mr. J.D. Roth, who had their blog first? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to claim uh, superiority there. I started my blog in uh, my financial blog in 2003. Yeah, yeah, there he is the OG. So this is uh, apropos. But Mr. Penzo, we've given you enough time to think about this one. The Onion Futures Act. What year was that passed? Uh, okay. So, um, <laughs> Onion Futures Act. I, I, I have no freaking clue. I don't even know where to begin. Well, onions were invented, Len, in <laughs> 87, I think. 87. Yeah, I think it was recent, really. Yeah. I mean, I think it was part of Wendy's giant uh, like food there. bar. Is this a law? Is this a real law? Is it that, is, is a that real what? law. Yeah. And Doug was right when he said that 
they're they've added things <laughs> to this on. like move motion picture box office receipts <laughs> Uh, there yeah, there are that. all these weird things they've added to it that you're not allowed okay. to try to corner the market on it. So you can't corner the market. When would when would there? Let's see. I, I was there ever? Did, when was the onions market cornered? <laughs> I, I mean, okay. I don't remember any of this happening in my lifetime. So it had to be before I was born, which is a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I figured that out, Len, when you wanted to go see a real human at a bank. We all gathered. <laughs> yeah. That you're old as F. Hey, <laughs> hey, let's see. Uh, onions. I don't know. Um, for some reason, I think this would happen probably in the 20th century. I just don't – I can't imagine somebody trying to corner the market back in the 1800s. So let's say, <laughs> and and I know there, there, there was nothing that I can remember in my lifetime where there was some, so it has to be, it's either in the roaring 20s, you would think that's when that would happen, when things are really going great, or maybe it was during World War II, people were playing shenanigans with that. I should have left an hour for the trivia. Speaking of shenanigans. I have no Joe. clue. I have no clue. I'm going to say 19. I'm going to, I'm going to say 1949. 1949. Well, Paula, what are you going to do with that? It's so strange to go second. Welcome. Wow. This is what it's like. <laughs> the second chair feels warm, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it's actually the hardest position, I think, Paula, mm. being from the second position. I'm going to go with a big gap. I'm going to say 1888. 1888. Well, Harlan, is it before 1888, after 1949, or somewhere in the middle? Hmm. In the see, you know, my mind goes to the Great Onion Famine of 1900. You know, that big worldwide event that everyone knew about. Um, <laughs> so, potato. <laughs> I remember grandma telling me tales of that, yeah. reading me bedtime stories. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I, I think like the whole um, commodity stuff, I feel like that was post-World War II kind of thing. Well, I got to ask, uh, wait a minute, before you give your guess, you talked about the Great Onion Famine in 1900. When we're old, are we going to be telling our kids about the great toilet paper outage <laughs> of 2020? I so. Absolutely. I, it's already in the history books. Right. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah, 19, I would I would say something like in the 50s, though, like um, 1957. 1957, Harlan says. So we've got 57, well, 49, and 1888. Doug? Yeah. Well, I mean, Len thought for so damn long that that gave everybody else, you know, all the time they needed to Google the hell out of this topic. So I, 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 there's no way we don't have a damn near close answer here. All right. We're well, we're, 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 answer? well no, no. Oh, we, we would oh. like to do the trivia answer, but we don't do that. We'll be right back. <sighs> Dell Tech Fest starts now to thank you for 40 unforgettable years. Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech for a limited time only. Save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's 
Dell.com slash deals. All right. Looking at these, Mr. Penzo, you kick things off with 1949. You feeling pretty good? Yeah, I'm feeling good. Yeah, because what was Paula? 18 what? 1888. Oh, yeah. I'm feeling good. You don't I'm know this, but good. 1888, the year the onion became great. That's You never heard that in elementary <laughs> school? <laughs> I, that gets me all the way into the roaring 20s. That I, I am good. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, uh, Paula, eighteen eighty eight. If it's sixteen forty, you're the <laughs> going to be the winner. I mean, I feel good because I've just captured the bulk of the downside, so I've got a wide swath. Well, speaking of that, Harlan, if it is nineteen eighties, like we were joking, you've got it with your nineteen fifty seven. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't feel super confident, but uh, I just, I don't know. Thinking after World War Two. Well, is Len going to pull further ahead? Paula going to go into a tie for first, or is OG finally going to get his butt in the game? Let's listen. Hey there, stackers. I'm Orange Juice Concentrate, trading whiz, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. You know, it was two onion traders, everybody knows this story, Sam Siegel and Vincent Kasuga, who bought 30 million pounds of onions in Chicago, but then changed course by threatening to flood the market with their onions if onion growers didn't buy their supply, creating what's called a corner of the onion futures market on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The resulting regulatory actions led to the passing of the act. So my question was, in what year? They cornered the onion futures market in 1955, and then it was August 28th of... 1958 that the Onion Futures Act was passed and still remains in effect today. That means Harlan slash OG is our winner. Hey, oh, <laughs> well, look at that. <laughs> yeah, Harlan. Wow. It, Harlan knows he gets a really huge prize for winning <laughs> a big <laughs> pat on the back. Which, yeah, <laughs> I was way off. I thought the prize was going to be Len's photograph. So I yeah. was really hoping. Hey, I, you, you never know. Paul, you never Paul, know, you know, Harlan. You never when, know. When, Whenever we do trivia, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm doing all the research, I'm, I'm crunching the numbers, I'm crafting this highly tuned <laughs> trivia question. Okay, but then Paul, as you guys are answering, I'm typing out like your answers and I'm doing the math to figure out how far off is this person or that person. And Len answers 49. And, you know, I got I wrote in parentheses next to that, you know, nine years off. And on <laughs> Harlan 1957, not to type anything for him because he's damn close. And then Paula 1888, I couldn't do the math that fast. I just typed. <laughs> Load off. <laughs> That's so damn far. I'm not even going to get out the calculator. Wrong century. <laughs> it's like that show, but it's like the movie Major League where what wild thing yeah. the pitcher pitches it like over the backstop yeah, and the guy goes just a bit outside. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? That's sweet for OG because, you know, he got robbed. Was that last week? I, I don't know what the question was, but he was only off by two and he lost. He did. He if I remember just, correctly. Just he did. Off. Yeah, that was two weeks ago. Yeah, he got Chelsea Brennan and lost. Yep, but it took Harlan Landis to bring him back into the game. So <laughs> nice job, my friend. This is all for OG. <laughs> You're the wind beneath his wings. And by this is all, and by this is all Harlan knows, says that's all he's really going to do for OG. Like ever. <laughs> that is, that is <laughs> it. <laughs> Start off the second half of this, uh, Doug, with your favorite music. Second half brought to you by Magnify Money. 
Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money forward slash. I'm going back into old guy stuff, Len. Forward slash. Go to http www.magnifymoney.stackybenjamins.com slash magnify money. You know what happens, Doug, when you go to magnifymoney.com using our link? Oh, that pain in my left knee goes away? It's amazing that that sometimes can happen, but because of the fact that you're giggling so much because you just found out those products, speaking of brick and mortar banks, those products at your brick and mortar bank, probably not best in class. Over 92% of all the stuff available online ranked head to head against each other. Magnify money. Head to stackingbenjamins.com slash magnify money for more. All right. Second half of this discussion, we're going to pivot to a piece in investment news. This is an industry rag for financial advisors and brokers and people that manage money. Uh, this is uh, written by Jeff Benjamin. The debate versus active versus passive strategies, Jeff writes, may be coming to a close. Listen to this, guys. A rocky start to the year for the financial markets against the backdrop of surging inflation, higher interest rates would seem to indicate a strong right ahead for active management, right? We always hear that active managers do better when things are gyrating like they have been lately, to put it mildly. The argument typically goes market volatility, especially the downward kind, time for active managers to flex their muscles. In the wide world of book talking, that's often how the story is presented. However, what we're seeing is, is that when you look at the indices, like the S&P 500 and other indices, more and more money is headed into passive management, even during downturns early this year and all of last year, far more money into passive investments than into active. Len, does this surprise you? I know you're somebody that on the show in the past we've talked about, well, being active might pay off in, in times when the market goes down. I'm surprised that it says it's all it's settled. It says, you know, the debate may be coming to a close. I, yeah. I am on the record as saying, you know, it, of course, it makes sense to be a passive investor uh, when in non-managed funds in a bull market. But I am one of those people that believe in a bear market. And when things are downturning, uh, it probably pays off to – it's not such a let's, – let's, let's say this. It's not, a, it's not a sure bet. It's not a sure bet that uh, – I mean, if, if the index drops in a bear market – for a couple of years and say it drops five or 10%, your active manager doesn't, that's not a very high bar for him to beat. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm for active managed funds in, in that regard. Brian Shipley, co-chief executive at Aaronic Messina and Associates, uh, says that if you do enough research, time researching and allocating, you can actually do well. He says the data says you have about a 50-50 shot of beating benchmark after fees, he said. Every year we do a study on ourselves because we want to be sure we're adding value to our clients and the managers we approve for our clients. He said at worst, two-thirds of our managers beat their benchmark after fees, and at best, 80% have beaten their benchmark after fees. Paula, this doesn't line up with your thinking at all. Well, I mean, I, I think the best quote that he has is, if you're looking for risk management, active management is a source of risk, not risk management. Oh, you like that one. I like that one. But you see, so there's people, though, on both sides of this equation in this piece. Uh, I want to focus on the one not that agrees with you, Paula, but the one that disagrees <laughs> with you. Let's let's focus on that. Well, so, so I, I say that in order to highlight that you can cherry pick some performance data over a limited period of time, but that doesn't inherently address 
the risk involved in getting that performance and what that risk represents over a very long-term aggregate average. Well, and it's funny, Paula, you're right there. I think there is kind of a little bit of smoke and mirrors going on here because I know as a former financial advisor, we would always use benchmarks that weren't the S&P 500, right? Because with the theory being, and I think rightfully so, every person's not taking the risk that the S&P takes. Like if I don't need that type of risk, why would I call that my benchmark? So you lower that benchmark and then you find that managers often beat that benchmark. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's the challenge with cherry picking any kind of data points. But isn't that also a good thing then for active management? Like if I don't need the S&P 500 return, I'm hiring the active manager not to beat the S&P 500, but to control the amount of volatility that I have in my portfolio. There are passive funds that could also do that. And passive funds could do that more predictably than, uh, an active manager who would necessarily be taking some significant fees off the top. Let's bring our guest into this one. Harlan, where do you stand on this active versus passive debate? Or do you think it's over as well? Passive has won the, won the battlefield? Oh, it's not over. And I think it's not over because there are people who will not let it die because it's their living. It's their job. Active money managers have a, you know, have a, have a say in having people um, invest with them. And, and, and that's fine. I, you know, I'm kind of probably between Paula and Len here in terms of, of what I think, you know, my approach is. So I, I use a mix, right? I have passive funds. However, they're in active managed accounts and my money managers hate me for that because they're always calling me. They're saying, you know, how come you don't want to trust our advice here? You know, the the emails are subjected, um, you know, account underperformance. And it's like, I need your attention. You need to change your approach here. And active money managers have this great, you know, when it comes to cherry picking, this this great thing where if the funds aren't going well, if one money manager is dealing with, you know, just loss year after year or underperformance year after year, they just close the fund and they don't talk about it anymore. It's the active money management business uh, survives on survivorship uh, bias. So it, it's a way to pull the data to make those funds that beat the market appear like it is the norm. And you're talking about 50%, this this one quote in the article here, 50% of them beat the benchmarks. Well, you never know which 50% that's going to be. So, And that's um, so the key right there is that you have no idea. Right. And so you can go ahead and do that and it's probably fine. And the rising tide is going to lift all ships and Things will generally work out okay. But if you're the t- type of person who wants to optimize every little detail, I think you really can't go wrong using passively managed ETFs uh, in a taxable account or funds in uh, your retirement accounts. Paula, we had a listener in the basement, our Facebook group, who, who said something recently that's a myth that I hear so often. And It's the fact that when you start off, indexing is fine, but as your net worth gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you need active managers. And so he was worried that his nest egg was getting too big. And he said, hey, at what point do you switch from passive to active? Why is that still out there? You know, I don't know why that myth is out there. If I had to guess, uh, it would be a few things. Number one, it would be a reflection of people not understanding the why behind passive versus active, the, they 
might be coming to it with the assumption that passive is a parking lot, and you know, like with the assumption that active is good, but the extent of that good is a rounding error until there's a sufficient volume of money. That might be like the implicit assumption that they're carrying. Yeah, or maybe um, that you have to have so much money to hire the quote good managers. Mm, that's right. That that's another possible explanation that there's an exclusivity and people might assume that once they can access what is exclusive, that means they should, or that exclusivity necessarily equals better. Um, so that's another possible reason. And then the third possible reason is a bias towards taking action. Oftentimes people want to believe that doing something is better than doing nothing, even though in the world of investing, investing is one of the few places in which that is often not the case. You and I both talked to Robin Rigglesworth and to some degree, you know, dimensional advisors aren't open to anybody. You have to have an advisor. And I think there are minimums and there's a closer line with dimensional, as you may know, to, uh, to index type investing than there is with Vanguard. I mean, there's a direct link from the people that created the index fund and dimensional and dimensionals returns historically beat vanguards. And while they might not want themselves categorized as active, they certainly aren't picking the entire benchmark. So they are doing something which is tweaking these benchmarks. So isn't there something to be said a little bit for the exclusivity? If you have more money, you can maybe get rich a little quicker. You know, so this reminds me of another quote from that article in which somebody in the article stated that the lines between active and passive are increasingly getting blurred and that as the conversation continues to iterate and as funds continue to uh, evolve, the delineation between active and passive, it's no longer binary. It's now more of a spectrum. And what you've just described, I think, uh, really highlights that. Well, it's funny that you say that, Len. I want to bring you back into the this discussion because as an engineer, I think the second that somebody says the active's dead, you take an engineer who creates an algorithm, right? Who begins using machine learning to find these little divots in the market and comes up with something that creates some wins where there weren't some before. Of course. Yeah. I, I think Harlan kind of hit on it earlier. I liked where he said, you know, there's no reason why you can't have a, a mix of active and passive managed funds in, in your own portfolio if you want to break that up. As a matter of fact, that's what I do. And I think I've mentioned this before, but especially where I find the active managed funds are very helpful are in niche uh, areas that might be very dangerous for you to venture into on your own, very risky. And you might want to hand over the reins to somebody who's actually, they focus only on that particular niche. For example, I bring up mining shares, mm. uh, minerals, precious metals, uranium, stuff like that. And some of the I small mean, cap and micro cap too. Yes. Stuff that's very volatile where you can really get burned if you're not careful. There's high risk. So there's high chance for a high reward, but there's also chances for you know, very steep losses very quickly. And, and I've shared the story a couple of weeks ago, one of my stocks that I bought this last year, I watched it go up and double. And then it's almost down 50% in a 12 month period. I've held on to it. So in that case, it's worth having, I believe, in my opinion, an active manager for certain areas like that. And that's why I do have an active managed fund for some of my miners. I also, on the side, I play around with my own and I manage myself. But the active managed mining stocks, that fund that I have has outperformed me in the last year. So, Oh, 
Len, is your idea of an active manager, a guy with a hard hat watching the guys dig the ore that you invest in? <laughs> yeah, well, well, yes. These, yes, that's a good question, Doug. Yes, the fund I have for my miners, they go to the actual mining companies. They are hands-on. So they are very intimately knowledgeable about all of the things they invest in. That's something that I could never do. And I, I can't even, you know... I wouldn't even attempt it. So I just feel more comfortable. It, it's worth it. And I think I'm going to start putting more of my money into that, in, giving more of my money to that active management fund. Because, because you trust uh, the research. I trust the research. They know way more than I know. And uh, something so risky, I sleep better. Harlan, I want to ask you about kind of the future of in investing here, because we've seen lately the past few years, of course, people can get in on some of these investment categories that we didn't used to be able to get in on. I asked Paula about access earlier, but now, as you know, a lot of smaller investors can buy farmland, they can buy art, they can buy collectibles. You can get into hedge funds or IPOs that you were locked out of before with a lot of these apps that are out there. Is that access a good thing or a bad thing that we're getting more and more of that uh, advertised to us? Well, it's a mixed thing. I think it could be really great for some and really dangerous for others. I mean, access has been something that has changed over the last uh, you know, several decades. I mean, it used to be that you had to be rich in order to have any kind of retirement plan whatsoever, um, other than defined benefit with with the company just kind of you know, creating something for you like a pension. Um, but 401ks were the first thing to, to really give retirement investing to the masses once that was, you know, kind of accepted. And just in those, in the past 40 years after all that, I mean, it's just more and more access is given to more and more people. And more and more people just don't know what to do with that access. So it comes down to training and education, like we talked about earlier, and not stepping into something that's the newest and hottest thing without uh, without really understanding what it's all about. We, you could go so far as to talk about crypto when it comes to that. I mean, everyone is jumping on that. Everyone's seeing success and everyone therefore thinks they're an expert. So I think that and the the amount of access is something that can be dangerous. But if you've got the time and the willingness and the cognitive ability to understand everything that underpins everything, it's great. Boy, if you look at the Bitcoin price chart since mid-October, though, you're hurting when it comes it's to scary. Yeah, that down roller coaster. Which brings me to this. Len, do you think are people ill-equipped for some of the volatility that we see in some of these new markets? I think most people getting in are ill-equipped. I mean, I cannot imagine people who have jumped in in November when Bitcoin was at 67,000. I think today it closed at 35,000. So in two months, it's fallen almost by half. So, I mean, that, you know, when you're doing something speculative, you really need to know what you're getting into and you really have to convince yourself that you really can handle, you know, wild swings like that. You, your convictions must be strong. If they're not strong, you're going to get shaken out and uh, you could really lose your shorts. I haven't checked the math on this, Len, but uh, in Los Angeles, there's, of course, your team, the Rams. And I don't know oh, if yeah. you saw this, that Odell Beckham Jr. joined the Rams. Oh. 
He's so hosed. Apparently, when he agreed to take it, he wanted to be paid in Bitcoin. And apparently so far where other football players are making millions of dollars, I think they said as of the time we record this, he's he's made like 35,000 bucks. Really? Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, he's <laughs> got to pay taxes based on the full amount he right. was granted, not where the value is yes. at the time he files. Oh, wow. and, the, and because of the high amount of it, he qualifies for the highest income bracket. The highest tax California treatment. state tax. Yeah. So he's just completely. Oh, flat. wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't hear that. I'll have to look into that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. It is. It is pretty, pretty ugly. Paula, what do we do with this? I mean, I'm sure you agree that a lot of investors are ill-equipped for the kind of volatility with these new opportunities, but mm-hmm. do we regulate? Do we tell our listeners, Hey, do a lot more homework. I mean, where do you stand on what the next move should be as we move forward with more and more access to exciting and weird and strange investment opportunities? I think this is where financial education comes in. This is why podcasts like this one exist because it is through digital media and there's a lot of both good and bad out there on all forms of digital media, but it's through digital media that people learn about investing. And unfortunately, because there's a lot of good and bad out there, there are people who are uh, giving good advice, people who are giving bad advice, good education, bad education. And um, to anyone who's listening, I would say, you know, start with small bets, start with nothing that you can't afford to lose and and sort of slowly work your way in over time. But um, so much of personal finance is knowing what, knowing not just the landscape around you, but also knowing yourself and your own responses to external stimuli. And that synthesis comes with time. It's interesting that we come to the same conclusion that we did with banking, that third-party knowledge, not just from the people selling it, but from outsiders, is a good place to, good place to leave that. All right, let's uh, find out what's going on where all of you live. Len, you want to go first? We'll have our guest of honor go last. What's happening at LenPenzo.com? I think I'm going to do a report on the Great Onion Act of whatever, in 1958 or whatever that was. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? No. It, it, it actually would be interesting, Doug. Yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty interesting story. <laughs> yes. No. It truly, no, truly at, is. At, at This week at LenPenzo.com, I run my household like a business, and I uh, it makes things much easier, and I go into the actual details. Wait, hold on. Uh, hold on. Start that sentence over. That up. The honeybee runs your home as a business, not you. <laughs> Well, the honeybee is the CFO of the household. I'm the CEO of the household. Anyways, we go in, I go into all that, the, the jobs of our, the household CFO, the household CEO. Ooh. How and, many times uh, have you been fired, Len? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, hey, my options are going to uh, qualify. They're, they're going to go through here, and I only need another year, and I'm good. <laughs> And that's at lenpencil.com. I like that analogy, though, because, you know, we just did uh, a headline about Peloton and really thinking of yourself as a company, you can kind of learn some things from these things that happen with companies that maybe shouldn't have. Yeah. Well, uh, getting organized is very important. I mean, it makes a big difference, especially when you start getting kids and you're married and you got things going on. I mean, it really, there's a lot of things you have to do. Paula, what's happening at the Afford Anything podcast? On the Afford Anything podcast, we talked to Spencer Jacob. He is from the Wall Street Journal, and he wrote about the GameStop saga. So we're at the one-year anniversary of the you know, Reddit takedown of Wall Street. And so we look back on everything that happened a year ago and put that into its recent historical context. It's a fascinating episode. He uh, runs the Hurt on the Street column for the Wall Street Journal. Brilliant, insightful, 
and frames what happened with GameStop and meme stocks, stonks in general. He frames all of that into uh, a wide lens, big picture context. Not what you thought it was. Exactly. Yeah. Harlan, thanks a ton for hanging out, man. We don't get to do this enough, my friend. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Thanks for having me here. Well, let's dive into this new season. Michelle Jackson, your new host, and what's coming up on the Plutus podcast? Yeah, well, Michelle's got a few guests lined up for this season. It's going to be a little different than what we've done in the past. We're focusing the entire uh, series, and it's going to be, uh, I think, nine or ten episodes, so a little shorter than what we usually do, but diving deep into a lot of the strategies that uh, some really successful and -and up-and-coming bloggers and podcasters have to share about um, just how they make an incredible impact and how those of us in the financial media can do that as well. Yeah. And if you're somebody who's just beginning your journey or you're thinking about starting to create some financial content, we talked a lot today about uh, financial education. Uh, No better place to start than the Plutus podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? I'll tell everybody what they should have learned today, Joe. First, that every rule in investing comes from some guy trying to take a shortcut to onion riches or passively invest or, you know, maybe to bank electronically. Second, actively managed funds can be a source of risk in and of themselves. However, there are passively managed funds that can help you mitigate your risks. Like Paula said, the line between active and passive Becoming as blurred as my vision after a few scotches. So, you know, bottom line here is I have no idea what I'm talking about. But the big lesson, while Harlan Landis loves screaming fans, he's not a fan of being mistaken for John Landis's relative, you know, like by me. My bad, dude. Sorry. Thanks to Paula Pant for joining us today. You'll find her podcast, Afford Anything, where you're listening to us right now. Thanks to Len Penzo for joining us. You can find Len at lenpenzo.com. Thanks to Harlan Landis for joining our roundtable today. You can find the new Plutus Awards podcast wherever you're listening to us right now. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is written in part by Paulette Perhatch, who helps writers power their words, their work, and their earning potential with her Powerhouse Writers coaching program. Find out more at powerhousewriters.com. Thanks also to our team who made today possible. Karen Repine is our producer. Tina Eichenberg and Gertrude Smith are our social media mavens. And Brooke Miller handles the show notes and our amazing newsletter, The 201. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Barely. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor.
Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens in the after show stays in the after show. When we were talking about performances, man, I don't know about you guys. I want to get back out to uh, see concerts. I know, Harlan, you're involved with a band, right? Well, it's it's a drum and bugle corps. Drum so and bugle corps, yeah. I, I, you got to you got to believe that I, I have to believe anyway that COVID must have wreaked havoc on the corps. Oh yeah, I mean it, it shut everything down. Uh, normally we go on tour in the summer uh, across the country, and I mean there there was nothing that we could do. There there's no way to keep everyone safe. I, I mean these are kids who sleep in buses, sleep on gym floors, uh, rehearse twelve hours a day, and there's there there was nothing that yeah, can't you know, do it. it, it way to make that happen so yeah shut down for two years well i'm hoping that this summer knock on wood with the way that COVID's going lately that uh that the world opens up a little bit and it kind of reminded me of and i was curious about what your favorite concert and maybe worst concert was that you've been to and uh, paulo let's start with you I, I you don't know movies but do you go to many concerts I don't go to many concerts, but I would say that my favorite one was the very first concert that I ever went to. I was 11 years old and I was going to Disney on ice. No. Um, Although would Disney on ice be considered a concert? I would think of that as a show. Probably not. Just a show. Yeah. Sorry. Selena Gomez. Uh, No. Oh, keep guessing though. This is, this is great. Uh, Think back to who was really popular when I was 11. Right. That's why I guess Selena Gomez, because she's only like 22. So I figured that fits right in with your age range. We should have Len guess it. Then when people start the next episode, this episode will still be going. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, TLC, it was TLC. TLC. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And uh, worst concert you went to? You know, I don't, there wasn't a worst in terms of the performer, but there was definitely a worst in terms of going to this bluegrass jam kind of like all day concert event in Fort Collins, Colorado. And this guy, like he just kept chatting and chatting and chatting and chatting and wouldn't shut up. And like, so I couldn't really hear the music or like dance or get into it because there was just, it was, so it was a company that I was with rather than the, the music itself that created a uh, not fun That day. sounds like a great time. Yeah. Harlan, how about you? Best, worst? Okay. Best is going to be uh, Roger Waters a few years ago. Roger Waters, oh, former wow. in Philadelphia. Uh Big stadium type of concert, just uh, amazing. You know, this sounded amazing uh, visually. I mean, it was a spectacle, and and you know, smell wise, it was you know quite interesting as well. Um, <laughs> you, got yeah, full, I, you got the full four D. You, you get the full sensory experience. Yeah, I, that was definitely uh, my favorite concert. Len, I would imagine you've been to a lot of concerts. I've been to a bajillion of all, all the, almost all the great bands. I think there's only a couple that I haven't seen and I regret. But probably the best concert I've ever been to was the late Eddie Money. Uh, he played the gym at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And this was back in the days when the gym was no, no bigger than it was just like a high school gym. It was, that's all it was. It was very small. And he rocked that place like he was playing Madison Square Garden. It, it was just doesn't, so, doesn't surprise me. Oh, my God. It was the best. And I've seen almost everybody. It was the most rockinest, 
funnest concert I have ever been to in my whole life. So Len, what, I got free tickets to see Eddie Money because he's always the first uh, performer at this place in Detroit called Pine Knob. And whoever had the tickets didn't want to go, so I invited a friend of mine. And we went at the, literally at the last minute. And I remember walking in and we both said, I think I know two Eddie Money songs. This guy played for two hours straight, and I think I knew every song. Like, you forget how many songs this guy had. Uh, you know, he started off as a cop. Yeah. And he, but then he went back you know, and did it all over. You never know it. The guy was a showman. And let me tell you, at the concert we were at, by the end of the show, people had grabbed him and they were passing him all down the gym from the from one side to the other he was just being passed on his back while he was singing it was the most amazing uh, i mean oh my god that guy was amazing he was just an amazing showman uh horrible concert you went to i you know what i i i was thinking i can't think can't about think that concert i can't i really can't <laughs> i think the best concert i actually went to was a comedy show i saw dave chappelle uh do comedy and he's just a genius it was amazing. And rather than do the the worst one, the surprising one, how about this one? One I thought was going to suck and it didn't. We took my mother-in-law to see Michael Bolton and I was laughing and making bad jokes the entire way there. Did not want to see him. And that dude put on an amazing show. It was great. Doug, how about you? Let's... Uh, Give us a good one, a bad one, or surprising one, and we'll call this. Yeah, a day. sure. You know, like Len, I'm a huge music fan, and I have been to a lot of concerts. And two that stand out for me, one was a surprising one, like you just described. But the the worst one was in high school, we went to see Bob Seger. It was one of, I don't know, his like five or six comeback tours. The guy never seems to stop having comeback tours. And Counting Crows opened for him. We pre-gamed maybe a little too hard a lot too hard before that. And I saw Counting Crows. They were unreal before they really hit it big. And then I completely passed out on some girl's shoulder and never saw Bob Seger. So that was either... I don't know if that was the best or worst, but Counting Crows were incredible. And Bob Seger could have been awful, could have been amazing. Who knows? I was out for like two and a half hours. And the best concert, this is, nobody's going to believe this, but the best concert and the best showman I ever saw was Harry Belafonte. Oh yeah. I mean, I, oh. I mean, just, I never expected it. I went there thinking, okay, I'm doing somebody a favor. And I, and, and it was, I was just amazed. My jaw was on the ground. That dude knew how to work a stage. That's fantastic. You know, someday one of these people hanging out with us is going to be telling their friends, like the best performance I ever did was this uh, stacking Benjamin show that was on fireside. <laughs> it was so amazing. We'll talk about seeing Stacking Benjamins live. That's right. I was in hey, Cincinnati. You, real quick, uh, I, I got to tell you, Doug and Paula one were drunk the whole time. <laughs> I, I had one that more surprising Paul. one. Do you, do you guys remember the the Wiggles? I think they're still around. The Wiggles. Yeah, I took my kids when they were like three and five to to see them at the Arlington Theater in Santa Barbara, and that was a pretty fun concert. <laughs> they were singing about fruit salad and all this. Stuff. It was just, it was, it was a great concert. Wow. But at that age, I think you're starving, right? You're just starving for anything. <laughs> like get me out, out of the, the house. house. Right? Yes. I'm just annoyed whoa, with Len. <laughs> I need a haircut just from the time it took you to think about that answer. <laughs> <laughs> he he has a hard time thinking while he's in his closet taking pictures of himself pictures in his underwear. Of, of, yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure if he's taking pictures of his own underwear or him in his underwear. <laughs> Either way, I'm it's not eating dinner mine. tonight. It's my <laughs> underwear. <laughs>
Len starts the episode talking about his underwear and then says he wants a more personal touch. (laughs) (laughs) Good one, Paula. Well, Stackers, this episode is over, but you know what? Your homework has just begun, and it's not about what you know. It's about what you do. And partnering with the right organizations is a huge part of your success. Well, let me tell you, becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Now, not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. Begin, stackers, with your debt strategy. Decide what the best terms are and conditions for the debt that you want to take, and then decide on the products. And with Navy Federal, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing costs or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable as you work your way through life. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equalizing lender, membership required. Terms and conditions apply, loans subject to approval.